My name is Nick Enfield. I'm with the Sydney Centre for Language Research, and today I'm talking to Nick Reamer. Nick Reamer is a joint appointment at the Department of Linguistics and the Department of English at the University of Sydney. He coordinates the History and Philosophy of Linguistics node of the Sydney Centre for Language Research at Sydney University. What is the history and philosophy of linguistics? Well, it's a it's a subdiscipline of linguistics or, or maybe a field in its own right. And I suppose the, the premise of it could be understood as being that if we really want to understand what language and language practices are like, we also need to understand the nature of the intellectual tools that we've developed to, to analyse those practices. Um, so history and philosophy of linguistics is, is the field that turns its attention to, you know, the, the, the nature and the development of uh, linguistics and, and of grammar, um, looking at you know the circumstances in which linguistic ideas were created and the, the factors that led to them being disseminated. Um, also, you know, interestingly, that the history of critiques of linguistics, uh, the, the critiques of, of grammar that have have emerged in you know lots of different traditions. I mean, one really interesting example is from the a really early work from the second or third century of our era by Sextus Empiricus, which is called Against the Grammarians. And there's a whole tradition of, of critiques that sort of flow from that um, against the idea of grammatical or linguistic analysis. And that is also part of the, the history of the discipline. And then in the philosophy of the discipline, you know, um, there's an effort to turn our attention to questions that arise pretty naturally in the practice of linguistics research, you know, questions about, you know, how, how do you evaluate theories? How do you tell when one theory is better or more simple than another? Um, what, what's the nature of the theoretical categories that, that arise in, in the process of language description? Um, you know, for the last decade or so, there's been, there's been quite a big debate in linguistic typology, which has centred around the question of whether what linguists do when they describe one language is the same or different from what they do when they compare languages among themselves. And there's a whole set of intellectual coordinates that we can bring to bear on that question, which, which aren't usually invoked when linguists just, you know, try to think about these questions in the course of their practice, but, but which we can bring in to, you know, enrich and deepen and sort of, I think, myself improve the quality of, of, of reflection on these kinds of questions that, that just arise when you try and do linguistics. So that's the they're, the, they're the two prongs of the history and philosophy of linguistics. So do you think that they're different or the same as the history and philosophy of other disciplines? Uh, is the history of, and philosophy of linguistics following in the footsteps of what other disciplines have done or is it leading the way or where, how does it sit in relation to other major disciplines? Well, I mean, you know, it's obviously not anywhere near uh, as, de as developed uh, institutionally as the history and philosophy of science, which is obviously a self-standing, um, old academic pursuit in, in its own right. Compared to that, the history and philosophy of linguistics is very much a, a boutique or, or, or marginal um, enterprise. It's not, I think, particularly well known. In, in the discipline itself. Most linguists probably don't know very much about the existence of the field. Um, it's certainly been uh, 
influenced by ideas that have taken shape in, in the history and philosophy of, of science. Um, ideas, you know, Kuhnian ideas about, about paradigms, for example. Um, but it's also had its own separate track, I think. Um, and recently there've been efforts to establish a sort of institutional architecture for studies in the history of the humanities in general, which um, the history of linguistics has contributed to in no small way. So with, with respect to linguistics itself, I think it's a bit of an, an outlier. Um, and it's also true that in the, in the practice of, of history and philosophy of linguistics, or at least in, in the practice of the history of linguistics, I think people's reference points are, are generally from the field itself, even though they've got an eye on developments in history and philosophy of science and the, and the, the history of other disciplines. But it is a fairly self-contained intellectual enterprise, just as linguistics itself is, you know, I think that that is one of the things that it would be good to, to change in, in both fields, actually. I'd like to see both a linguistics and a history and philosophy of linguistics that looked outside themselves rather more than they do at the moment. Well, I was going to ask about um, the, the field of linguistics as a discipline itself. You mentioned uh, just now a reference from, you know, the second or third century. Um, when would you say that linguistics as a discipline was born? Some would say that that word hasn't, you know, hasn't been used for all that long in relation to, to research on language. No, and, and that's, that's clearly true. I mean, I think the question is how long have people been trying to understand deep questions about, about the nature of language. Um, and if you, if you put the question that way and worry less about the labels that we use for it, then, you know, the history, the, the study of, of language or the study of grammar is one of the most ancient um, components of, of Western intellectual history. Um, okay. So you, you don't want to see a difference between um, grammar and linguistics in this, in this general sense. Is that right? Well, I mean, cl clearly there are clearly there are differences. I mean, you know, obviously contemporary linguistics, as it's studied in universities, is a very different discipline in many ways from the discipline, of, the traditional discipline of grammar. But nevertheless, there are really important similarities between them in that both are fundamentally interested in in understanding the structure of language. And, and also in constituting these theoretical objects called languages, which often don't have a really clear relationship to the, the mess of what goes on when people actually speak. So they're two really clear similarities, which I do think link. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, modern linguistics, its roots lie in, in traditional grammar. So there's a, a clear continuity between them there. Right. So tell me, um, what are you currently working on in your research in, in relation to, to this uh, domain? Well, um, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. Um, one of the things I'm working on is a, is a question that has really exercised me pretty much ever since I've, I've seriously been working on, on language structure, um, which is the question of how we, how we understand the nature of, of linguistic knowledge, given the immense diversity in linguistics itself. Um, linguistics is a field where what, really whatever subdomain you take, um, there's no single agreed on account of what language is like or, or how it should be studied. So that's, to me, a sort of state of affairs that 
the discipline accepts in its practice really, uh, really, really well. I mean, if you're a member of a linguistics department, you just know that there are going to be people you're working with who have really very different ideas to you um, about what language is like and how it should be studied. But it's always struck me that that diversity is never really incorporated into the way we sort of publicly think about language within any one of those theories. So. I think there's work to be done sketching out a sort of understanding of what linguistic knowledge is, given this pluralism and diversity that's intrinsic to, to, to the field. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm working on. And another thing I'm working on is, is a question that's related to that, which is the question of why it should be that that pluralism and diversity isn't more front and centre in the way that linguists tend to talk about what they're doing, we, we tend to silo ourselves and we tend to sort of engage in this fiction which pretends that completely different ways of things don't exist in the discipline. I don't know whether you agree about that, Nick, but that seems to me to be the sort of standard modus operandi of, of lots of research traditions in the, in the discipline. And so my question is, what, is the, what are the pressures and forces um, that lead to that sort of disavowal of the theoretical pluralism that, that actually exists in the discipline, but that we don't really, I think, ever take quite seriously enough. And, and my, you know, my way into answering that is to, to think about what it might mean to see linguistics as a basically hermeneutic discipline in the sense of a discipline that's basically about interpreting language structure. Because if, if that's the way you, you consider the, the mission of linguistics, then it sort of falls out very naturally that different theoretical traditions and different people are going to have different interpretations. I mean, that's something that an interpretation is. It's just an interpretation. You expect it to differ. You expect the interpretations that people give to, to differ. Um, among them. And so thinking that through is one of the things that I'm working on at the moment, um, particularly in, in view of the sort of ideological pressures that, that, that push particular researchers in, in particular directions. Okay, so maybe we'll come to the, to the ideological pressures in a second, but I think it would be nice to, to, to unpack or for me to a little bit better understand some of the points you just raised. So um, you mentioned linguistic knowledge and how you know there's this compartmentalization uh, of linguistic knowledge where maybe that's that's not the right thing to do so are you talking when you say linguistic knowledge are you talking about the knowledge that a person has when they when they know a language the kind of thing that, that a person needs to know for us to be able to say that they know english or you know that they have language is, is that the the broad sense in which you mean linguistic knowledge? No, no, I'm talking about the theoretical uh, analyses that get developed in the discipline. So, you okay, know, so you're also saying then that from, so you asked also about, you know, the experience of being in a linguistics department or just knowing the discipline, let's say looking at the journals and so on. Um, do you mean with respect to the compartmentalization, do you mean, you know, we've got a field called phonetics and a field called phonology and a field called, you know, morphology and, and syntax and semantics and sociolinguistics and, and all of the rest. Is that, is that the siloization you're talking about? That, that's, that's part of it, but it's probably the smaller part. And that's a part which linguists have, I think, um, characteristically tried to, uh, you know, break down in, in, in 
in recent decades. You know, the idea that syntax and semantics, for example, form a continuum. That's a, an, uh, an idea that you, you find all over the place. Really, the, the, the compartmentalization I'm talking about is really one of, of paradigms or theoretical traditions. So, you know, I think that the clearest example of this in the discipline today is the contrast between, you know, what we can broadly call generative grammar and, and sort of fun functional grammar. You know, there's, I think, um, a tendency that we, that we have to just sort of burrow into our particular theoretical paradigm and to pursue that. I mean, that's the way that, that, that empirical scientists often do, do their work. They just, you know, single-mindedly pursue a particular set of theoretical hypotheses in the hope that it, that it is going to lead them to a better understanding of the phenomenon that they're looking at. Would you similarly say that that was a matter of interpretation in the same sense that, that you, that you mentioned earlier with hermeneutics or would that be something else like a, um, like, like picking a different aspect of the phenomenon to, to be interested in? Well, look, take, take my own discipline, for example. I mean, my own home discipline was semantics, for example, which is the, the part of linguistics that tries to understand how meaning in language operates, whatever that is. Semantics has this very large number of different theoretical traditions in it. You know, there are people who do this thing called cognitive semantics. There are people who do, uh, you know, complicated sort of statistical probabilistic analyses. There are people who basically write definitions there are people who want to look at uh, at language in use much more. What I think is is missing is the fact is is the idea that the phenomenon of meaning in language can and maybe should be approached from all of these uh, angles at the same time, and none of them really excludes the other. But none of the the theoretical traditions that exist to study meaning really, I think. Uh, adopt that pluralistic attitude from the outset, they all start with the premise, look, this is the way to study this particular thing. You know, there's a sort of my way or the highway element to it. It's never articulated um, ex as explicitly as that. And I think it's not even explicitly uh, part of people's conscious way of approaching the discipline. But nevertheless, the way we, the way we couch theoretical proposals and analyses within any one of these paradigms does presuppose that, you know, each way that, or that the particular way that I say have chosen to approach meaning um, is in competition with all of the others, that I'm racing to get the best account of linguistic structure. And I'm doing it my way because I think this is the one that's going to lead to results. And sure, you can do it in another way, but in the end, we'll see who's right. Um, that, I think, that sort of monopolistic conception of, of linguistic theory, where we're, all, where, where we're all racing to get the right analysis and we're seeing who's going to get there first, I think is very entrenched in linguistics. It comes from our conception of ourselves as doing empirical science because that's the Well, don't way... you think... Sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify. So um, when you see people racing to get to a solution that they think is the right one... Um, you know, I, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is that, you know, you have, let's say, a couple of academics who are somehow competing against each other for uh, uptake or acceptance or, you know, followers or something like that, like two novelists might, um, you know, compete for a share of the market in some sense. Um, 
But at the same time, you have people who are doing, let's say, semantics. You mentioned in your field, you've got people taking computational approaches and so on. And that would include people who are trying to solve problems that are being applied, for example, in artificial intelligence or natural language processing, or, you know, they have a very concrete um, sense of what success looks like. So that presumably would, presumably you have some kind of continuum between, you know, a pure kind of uh, battle of maybe aesthetics or something between two academics at one end and people who are approaching things differently purely because they have a different end goal in mind or a different application, most importantly, in mind. Do you think that's true? Yeah, no, I think that is true. I think what's striking about it is that the, the most sort of applied demands of linguistic theory, the ones that are most geared to solving particular, you know, concrete tasks, as you say, are often the ones which have least to do with linguistic theorizing as it goes on in most linguistics departments. So, you know, the, fur the closer you get to computational applications that are really geared to, you know, improving search algorithms or optimizing automatic text translation or whatever, or, or voice recognition, really the further away you get from the core disciplines of linguistics as it's been traditionally conceived. So I think there is a split in the discipline in that, in that way. And a lot of work on language goes on in, you know, computer science departments um, quite out, outside the ambit of, you know, the, the traditional sort of structural-based linguistics that I think you and I both uh, are most used to. And, and what about dictionary production, you know, again, in your field, where that, that's also a very specific kind of outcome um, that is creating dictionaries with definitions of words and so on, and some would say, well, you know, that's what semanticists should be doing. Um, we don't tend to do that so much in linguistics departments. So where, where do you see dictionary writing and lexicography sitting in this story? Yeah, I mean, I see that as, a, I see that as an applied domain um, or a, a domain in its own right, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with linguistic semantics. I mean, that, that may sound sort of scandalous, but I mean, there's no... The, the idea that words have meanings which can be encapsulated in definitions, like the kind you get in, in uh, dictionaries, that's a theoretical hypothesis, which may or may not be true. Um, now, the art of dictionary writing, which after all is a, a pretty recent thing, you know, the, the idea of a monolingual dictionary is a, a very recent, it's only a couple of centuries old or you know, more than a couple. It's, you know, it's got a fairly recent history in our in our intellectual tradition and it represents a particular take on what language is like um so lexico and you know there's no doubt that dictionaries are useful books which people frequently appeal to but i wouldn't yeah. want to take them as the be all and end all of you know of of of, of what a, a theory of linguistic semantics has got to do right I, I think from the point of view of people who aren't linguists people who are interested in language and the science of language, dictionaries are going to be one of the first things they think of, of course. Um, you know, the, the, if we're talking about word meaning, well, we must be writing dictionaries. So I, I, don't, I don't think what you said was scandalous um, from the point of view of ling linguists. This is, this is sort of received a received view that, that dictionaries really aren't what we do and they're not much good in a whole bunch of ways. But uh, I think it sounds scandalous to people who, who aren't necessarily professional linguists. Um, I'd like to come back to the point that you uh, came to when I 
uh, interrupted you earlier on, which was the question of, um, you used the term ideology in relation to the kinds of issues that you saw being most important in, in uh, history and philosophy of linguistics. So can you, can you tell us what you mean um, by that and how, and how you think we can, we can study it and address it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose the, the central thing to start with is the idea that linguistic theorizing, theorizing about the structure and nature of language is a social act. It's not something that's conducted, you know, by brains in a vat, in a vat to have no ties to society outside them. When we do linguistics, it's, a, it's something that we do as part of our social lives and there are institutional structures, um, often with lots of money invested in them in, in universities and elsewhere, which are dedicated to fostering a particular kind of theorization and, and understanding about language. So it's, it's reasonable, I think, to, to ask the question, are there ways in which the, the fact that uh, linguistic theorizing is social and, and a thing that people do in a particular society, in a particular time, um, from a particular social standpoint often, you know, for example, as undergraduate students, is do those sociological variables push linguistic theorizing in particular directions, perhaps, or um, looking at it from the other side, you know, repel it from, from particular other, other directions? Um, and so that's an interesting question, I think. You know, linguists are people. Linguists are employees. They're academics. They have all sorts of beliefs which are not just about the, the nature of language. And it would be a sort of weird thing to think that linguists stop being people when they start doing linguistics. Um, and it would also be weird to think that, you know, that linguistics departments and linguistic schools and particular collections of theorists stop being social collectivities when they do their work as well. So asking what the directions are that, that linguistic theory might get pushed in by its social origins and social, um, its location in social space, I think becomes really interesting. That's also a political question as well, of course, because, you know, part of our social identity is a identity, is a political identity. We all have particular sort of often not very well articulated ideas about what kind of world we should live in, what side we're on in particular debates. And it's interesting to explore them and to just, I suppose, give an example of that. Um, some work that I've done in the last couple of years has been looking at George Lakoff, the, uh, one of the founders of, of cognitive linguistics, um, who alongside his theoretical work in linguistics had a very explicit political commitment to the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party in the US, and explicitly tried to tie um, conclusions that came from his, his work on, on, on linguistics and semantics into a particular political project. And one of the things that I think we can see there is that that influence is not just from linguistics to politics. If we explore the way that Lakoff's linguistics works and that cognitive linguistics works, we can also see all sorts of ways in which these kind of sociological, ideological, political ideas sort of get infused into the work of linguistics itself. And that's something that, you know, I'm, that, that, that has been recognised for a long time in linguistics. Um, but it's not all that often explored. And for me, it's a particularly rich and, and interesting 
dimension that we can adopt if we want to look at the way that linguistic theory actually arises and, and develops in, in society. Right. So one way that I would, I guess, understand what, what you're saying is that um, those sources of ideology, as you put it, uh, would be biases on, you know, the kind of work uh, that we do and the kinds of things that we choose to do and choose not to do. And you mentioned things like our social identities and the institutions that we're in and so forth. There's another use of the term ideology, which is quite widely used in, in linguistic anthropology, as you no doubt know, um, which is, you know, the study of how our beliefs about language, so the term ideology in that literature is used really uh, to refer to things like, you know, what comes to mind when we think of language, our, our sort of cognitive biases really about what, what kind of a thing language is and those biases lead us to pay attention to certain aspects of language and not other aspects of language. So, for example, you know, when you ask people about a language, the first thing they'll do is give you words for things. You know, if you ask them about French, they'll tell you some French words, the word for car and the word for bread and things like that. Um, and, and, and those researchers have sort of said, well, there's certain aspects of our own uh, linguistic cognition makes certain things about language more readily accessible. And so for the, just as you said before, because linguists are people, um, you know, we're not exempt from those same kind of sources, uh, sources of bias. But do you think that it's impossible to get out from under those biases? Um, you know, I think most scientists would say that, that because they're humans, there are sources of bias in any sort of line of work. Um, but they would also want to think that while it's probably not impossible to get out from under them entirely, that, you know, one can go quite some way to to acknowledge one's biases and then sort of try to try to try to free oneself from them as much as possible what do you think right i mean that goes to really deep questions in the, in precisely the philosophy of linguistics about notions of ob objectivity um, because when if we're talking about bias if we're saying that we have a bias what that precisely means is that we're not we're not objective and lying behind that is the idea that we, that we should be um, and the idea that we should be objective is obviously a really important component of any kind of empirical theorizing, because if we're interested in something that is outside us, like languages, um, we want not to just be able to make up, you know, conclusions about it. We want some grounds for, for thinking that our description or our analysis is actually a good thing, a good way of thinking about that language. We want to be right in a certain sense. So the, yeah. that, impulse to be objective should certainly not be discounted. But I think it's more complicated than that, though, because, you know, if we think about what a bias is, what's a bias? A bias is in some ways, it's a sort of preconception, isn't it? It's a preconception we have of, uh, of what we're talking about that guides us towards certain questions or towards certain views of the thing and away from others. Um, it's a sort of like a, a perspective that we adopt or the, a perspective that we come from in order to look at whatever we're investigating. And I think what I want to say about this is that our biases aren't, or our, the perspectives that we adopt aren't things that get in the way of us being able to see language. They're the thing that enable us to see language in the first place. Um, you now, if you think about 
a landscape. You can't see a landscape unless you adopt a particular point of view on it. You have to be standing and looking at it from a particular perspective in order to see anything at all. If you're continually moving around, all you've got is a sort of blur where everything is being readjusted. So I would want to myself get away from this idea that what we're doing in linguistics is trying to rid ourselves of biases. I see that as not a... Um, not a viable process and this is somewhere something i think where we can take some uh leads from work that goes on outside the discipline precisely in in hermeneutics which is a field i talked about earlier hermeneutics we can think of as a sort of theory of interpretation um and somebody who has done a lot of very fundamental work on on the philosophy of interpretation in the, in the, in the second half of the 20th century was the, the German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer, whose big book, uh, Truth and Method, which was published in 1960, tries precisely to sketch out a systematic vision of what we get when we try and uh, discard this objectivizing approach to the human world, including language that you just outlined there, Nick, the idea that says that, look, in order to really get at language properly, what we have to do is adopt uh, 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 an objective view. That is a view from nowhere. Um, Gardamer's project in many ways, and he did write about language a lot in the, the last chapter of that book, was to put forward a view of language where trying to get that kind of objectivity is sort of misguided because what we need to do instead is to recognise the perspectives which we're bringing to bear on the, um, on the thing we're, we're talking about and recognising that, that language is never something that's completely outside us that we could adopt a sort of third person or outsider's point of view on. It's always something that is in us as well. Um, because after all, everybody who tries to study language objectively is themselves a speaker and a hearer. And in, in studying language, we're invoking meanings. You know, we, we write theoretical texts about language which themselves have meanings. So we're always tied up in this, you know, sort of semiotic triangle or circle of circle of interpretive circle, um, hermeneutic circle, where we can sort of never really get out. So the, the issue then becomes being explicit about what the perspective is that we're adopting. I see. And so then you, 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 you can't get out, but you can take a stance and, uh, and let people know what that stance is. Um, and, then, and then you're in good shape. That would be, yeah. And that also has implications about the, the sort of uh, what you take your results to show. So if you right. think that, you know, what you're doing is adopting a stance which gives you certain other certain results, that sort of blocks the move that, you know, we want to often make, which is to say that this is the way language is, you know. And of course, the, the institutional structure of knowledge in, in university disciplines where, you know, we're always supposed to be publishing papers in top-ranked journals and we want to, you know, or applying for grants on the idea that we've got the best. Every, everything in the institutional structure of knowledge pushes us towards making these, I think, claims of intellectual or theoretical superiority, um, which I see as not very well matched to the, the, the nature of the knowledge that we can have about language, actually, which I think is intrinsically much more pluralistic than... than we often present it as in linguistics. Right, it's fascinating. So, all right, let me finish with um, just a last question. Um, what do you think 
the near future holds for 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 work in 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 your area what would you you know what do you think is the most interesting work going on in your area or where would you like to see um work being done uh in your area to make the most progress well i mean as maybe what i've already said suggests one thing that i would like to see would be a less idealist theorizing of the, the history of linguistics particularly and what i mean by that is a theorizing which was less about the history of ideas taken sort of as freestanding in themselves um, and more about the external history of, of, of linguistics. So the way that, um, you know, social history, ideological points of view shape the kind of theorizing that goes on in the discipline. I think a, a sociologization of linguistic, of the history of linguistics would be really salutary and, and desirable. Um, and the other thing maybe to just to just flag is a, a really interesting idea that um, was being talked about um, when I was last in Paris. Paris has the only uh, dedicated research institute in the world for the history and philosophy of linguistics. It's the Laboratoire d'Histoire des Théories Linguistiques, the History of Linguistic Theory Laboratory at the University Paris Diderot. And people there were talking about a, a, a new research program which they were initiating, which would be about what they called the, uh, the prospective horizon of linguistic theories. And what they meant by that was this briefly. Um, you know, when you do history of ideas, you're very used to looking at the way in which a given linguist sort of conceives of the history of the discipline before them. You know, uh, given linguists place themselves with respect to things in the past of their own discipline. They say, oh, you know, these pe previous thinkers said this such and such about this topic. Now I'm going to say this, or I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow this this already existing track in this certain way. But what about the way that linguists conceive of the future of their discipline? You know, how are we sort of projecting ourselves into the future when we do linguistic research? What are the, what kind of future linguistics are we sort of implicitly calling into calling into being or assuming the existence of. And that I think is a, a pretty interesting question. And I hope it's one that um, people are going to be working on. I'm not sure I'm going to myself going to be working on that so much, but I think other people will be, and that will be interesting and exciting, I think. Well, we can look forward to finding out. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Nick.